Um, thank all of you for coming. Um, and Rebecca's going to close the door. <laughs> I'll wait till she does that. Um, and certainly we would like this to be a, a community conversation. Uh, some of the questions I was hearing, I certainly would not have all the answers to, but your colleagues in this room will. So we are more than happy to be participatory and to um, talk about where some of the ideas I bring up may be uh, relevant to your situation. So, okay. All right, good afternoon, everybody. We'll start with introductions. Uh, my name is Rebecca Shrum, and I teach in the public history program at IUPUI. Um, and I've just rotated off a three-year term on the NCPH Book Award Committee, which is part of what brings me to this session, uh, which I'll talk about in just a minute. Uh, but our main speaker today is Dr. Andrea Burns. She's Associate Professor of History and Coordinator of the Public History Program at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Her PhD is from the University of Minnesota. She's currently working on a project, including a session at the 2018 NCPH Annual Meeting in Las Vegas um, on the Flint water crisis. But today we're here to talk about her first book, From Storefront to Monument, Tracing the Public History of the Black Museum Movement. And this book was the winner of the 2015 NCPH Book Award, which was the first year that I served on that committee. And it was a pleasure and an easy choice that year to award uh, the prize to this book because it seemed and was such a timely topic and it continues to be such um, even three years later. 
So depending on which version of the program uh, you have been looking at, uh, you may have known that we had hoped to add an additional voice to this conversation today, that of Dr. Yolanda Chavez-Leva, who is chair and associate professor of history at UT El Paso, but illness prevents her from being here today. And with that, I will turn it over to Andrea. Okay, I didn't quite expect this very formal setting, so I feel like I'm, I'm lecturing to undergraduates, which is kind of uncomfortable, so I'll do, I'll do my best up here. Uh, and we'll do our best with our um, technology as well. Um, should we just start yes. the slideshow? Oh, wait. I Um, so I'll give a, an overview of um, how I came about to write this book and then some of the main themes. Um, obviously, I can't touch on everything that I wrote, and you'd probably be quite bored if I did so, uh, but feel free to uh, ask questions afterwards, and we'll see where the conversation goes. Um, we know from just a glance at recent headlines and museums and historic sites uh, they are inextricably tied to currents of political, cultural, and socioeconomic change. Uh, the spaces are not neutral. They have never been neutral. Uh, so as a public historian, my work is based on the premise that museums and historic sites, uh, Civil War reenactments, Confederate monuments, and living history sites are places that can reflect and perpetuate ideas about power. Um, and the way I thought of this as I was writing my book is whose story is being told in museums and why? And who's doing the telling? That was kind of a guiding question. Um, so when I was a grad student in history at the University of Minnesota, um, I had kind of a, an aha moment in the archives. I came across these conference proceedings, which you see right here from 1969 at the Bedford Lincoln Neighborhood Museum in Brooklyn. And I was enthralled, if we can skip to the next slide. I was enthralled by this quote and this quote uh, kind of opens up my book. It's the foundation for what led me to do this research. Um, June Jordan, an African-American poet and playwright, uh, she grew up in Brooklyn, and she's arguing that if cultural institutions like the Met uh, did not and would not tell the stories of African-Americans, uh, then these places denied the lives and histories of African-Americans themselves. Uh, for her, it wasn't enough to just set aside an exhibit hall or even an entire floor of a museum for artifacts related to black history or history of the diaspora. Um, that would not suffice if the institution as a whole continued to neglect those who created the objects and these stories. Uh, so she was arguing uh, that African Americans needed to begin their own museums and tell their own stories. And we can see uh, the language in this quote is very visceral and very powerful. Uh, so that was the initial spark for my research uh, on what has been called the Black Museum Movement. Um, and certainly historical societies, libraries, museums have been focusing on African and African-American art, history, and culture uh, for some time since at least the early 19th century. Uh, curators at the Hampton University Museum was founded in 1868. Uh, they collected art and artifacts from around the globe, uh, African, Pacific Islander, and African-American fine art. Uh, and this is considered the oldest African-American museum in the United States. 
Uh, but what I wanted to do was focus specifically on museums founded after uh, World War II uh, and those that began in the 1960s and 70s in particular. Uh, because without the groundbreaking work of these particular museums uh, and the advocacy of their leaders, um, what we now know, of course, as the National Museum of African American History and Culture would likely not have come to fruition in the way that it did. So if we go to the next one. So from 1961 to about 1967, we see the emergence of several key African-American museums. Uh, the first one is the DuSalo Museum of African-American History in Chicago. Uh, this, uh, the carriage house behind this mansion was actually the first site of this museum and it was founded by Dr. Margaret and Charles Burroughs. Eventually they did move into uh, the main residence there, which had formerly been used by African-American Pullman porters as a gathering space. So it's kind of an interesting space that had been used by African-Americans in the south side of Chicago for some time. Uh, the next museum I focused on was the Detroit International Afro-American Museum, founded in 1965, uh, and the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum in Washington in 19... 67, if I remember correctly. Um, the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum, most of you probably have heard of it, uh, developed as a unique partnership between the Smithsonian uh, and local African-American community organizations. Um, Dr. Charles Wright in Detroit created the International Afro-American Museum. Um, I also looked at the African-American Museum of Philadelphia, which was founded in 1976 as a it was a specific project related to the celebration of the bicentennial. Um, and that museum is kind of an, an interesting counterpart to uh, some of these other ones. Uh, by the early 21st century, there were over uh, about 200 or more African-American museums in the US and Canada. Um, in my book, I kind of outline the characteristics they all share. Um, and they're certainly all different, but they have some key some key commonalities. Uh, all of them were based in major metropolises that were undergoing degrees of post-industrial transformation. Um, and then as the black population in each of these cities, Detroit, Chicago, Washington, Philadelphia, as these populations increased, more and more African-Americans began holding local, state, and federal offices. Uh, fewer than two decades after these museums opened, voters in each of these cities elected an African-American mayor. Um, except for the African-American Museum of Philadelphia, all of them began small, uh, storefront beginnings. Uh, they began in formal commercial buildings, homes, apartments. Uh, so in line with this, uh, there we go, there we've got the, the Carver Theater, which was uh, the only theater in uh, Anacostia that allowed African-Americans access because of segregation. So that building was transformed into the first home of the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum. So all of them began small. All of them began humble. Um, all of them began driven by uh, the goals, the passion of their founders and the community members. In terms of collections, Oh, yeah, there's another slide. Um, and, and I like this photo because we get a sense of uh, the community pride that went into founding these museums and the very grassroots-based communities. So this is the Anacostia Historical Society. 
uh, just after the Anacostia Neighborhood Museums open. And you see the Smithsonian banner. And I'll maybe talk a little bit about the tensions between the Smithsonian and Anacostia a bit later. Okay, so on to the next one. Um, so the collections. The collections uh, primarily featured neighborhood contributions and donations from other cultural organizations. Um, and most uh, were pieces that would have been neglected by curators at what I call mainstream uh, history and art museums. Um, what's interesting, I would find advertisements like this, which is kind of a poor quality, but it, you can see it's clearly uh, appealing. This is a, an African-American newspaper, the Chicago Daily Defender. You know, they're reaching out to community members who would not traditionally have given anything to a museum or perhaps even thought that their materials were of value and of worth to a museum. So from books to photos to papers, costumes, dolls, if you have or know anyone who has these items, please help preserve our history. So it's a kind of a, a crowdsourcing uh, collections effort by these early African-American museums. Um, and again, uh, many of these museums, their small staffs and volunteers, had to convince communities that what they had was worthwhile. Um, this brings me to my fourth characteristic. You can just keep it. Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, do that. <laughs> this brings me to my fourth characteristic, uh, which is the guiding argument for my book. Um, Museum leaders, leaders grounded their institutions in the cultural black nationalism of the black power movement. Uh, this means, among other things, they encouraged a uniquely black identity and consciousness, whether it's through their exhibits, through their educational programs, through their outreach efforts, um, and they emphasized interaction between the museum and the local community. Um, these black museum leaders, people like Dr. Charles Wright, uh, John Kennard at Anacostia Neighborhood Museum and others, uh, Margaret Burroughs, uh, they believed that their institutions must do what mainstream museums had not done, uh, accurately communicate the untold and hidden histories of African Americans. And I select this slide, of course, very consciously here. Um, I'd like to talk about the, I'll do two case studies that, the International Afro-American Museum of Detroit and the Anacostia Neighborhood Museums. Uh, so I'll talk about some of the groundbreaking work that they did uh, and how these museums have important connections to the dialogue about creating a national African-American museum. Um, so Dr. Wright, who founded the Detroit Museum, uh, was an assistant clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Wayne State University Medical School from 1969 to 83. And of course, we should note how rare it would be to have an African-American doctor at a major medical school during this period. But prior to founding the museum, uh, he worked as an activist, a civil rights activist. He gave aid to marchers in Selma in 65. Uh, and what I found in my research is that it was in Selma where he began to question whether the civil rights movement had been able to address uh, what he saw as a systemic misre misrepresentation of black history. And he believed these distortions affected the self-worth and identity of African Americans. Uh, his argument, we are trying to erase 350 years of dehumanizing brainwashing and civil rights are not enough. And I thought that was a, a powerful phrase. Why are you founding a museum? 
civil rights are not enough. And then he continues, something has to occur inside the Negro to erase these self-degrading ideas that he has been taught. And he thought a museum could be one of the answers to that. Uh, so the museum first took shape uh, in the basement of Wright's apartment in downtown Detroit in 65. Uh, so the choice of abbreviation for the museum, International Afro-American Museum, I-A-M, I am, uh, was not accidental. It stood for the statement, I am, but also for I am a man. And this is from the 1968 sanitation worker strike that Dr. King led. Uh, I thought, thought it was interesting that Wright is using this back in 1965. Uh, so what Wright is doing is essentially connecting his emerging museum with the emergent black power movement. Uh, which argues African-Americans must reclaim and assert their identity, their history, and masculinity, because it is a gendered notion. Um, go to the next one. So he has this bricks and mortar museum in his basement of his apartment, uh, but he and the museum staff and volunteers thought that a mobile museum would actually be uh, a more effective tool to reach audiences than a traditional one. Um, the uprising in Detroit in 1967 in July was a particularly uh, motivating force for figuring out how do we get people uh, to our doors? How do we get people to come to the museum? Or do we bring the museum to them? So this Museum on Wheels is created in about 1967. Uh, it opens, yes, August 1967. Uh, it travels through schools, uh, churches, mostly black, but some white throughout Detroit. Uh, you can read the records um, of kind of the letters that the museum staff are getting. Can your mobile museum come to us? Um, let's see, what's the next one? Yeah, if you flip to the next slide. So here's just an advertisement for the mobile museum series and some of the goals that they were trying to address. So repairing distortion of the image of the diaspora, create a sense of pride, increase knowledge and respect, and then it, it would continue on uh, through other subjects. Uh, so the, the rebellion, the uprising happened in July 1967. By September 1967, museum reports indicate uh, more than a thousand people, and in their words, in the heart of the Detroit riot area, had actually viewed the mobile exhibits, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, so this mobile museum exposed African-American audiences as well as white audiences to a new and accessible, in every sense of that word, uh, interpretation of black history and culture that they would not have been getting uh, in the public schools or at the other main museums in Detroit, and specifically the Detroit Institute of Arts. Um, and there's another <laughs> long series of conflicts between the Detroit Museum, or the Detroit Institute of Arts and uh, the International Afro-American Museum. Uh, I really loved looking at reactions to this mobile museum. Uh, there were letters saying, uh, it's about time someone thought enough of Negroes to tell us something about ourselves, was a, it was a common refrain. Um, so this is a groundbreaking museum. Back, can we go back to the mobile? There we go. It was a museum on wheels. So it demonstrates a museum does not have to have walls. It does not have to be rooted in one place 
to bring a simple but powerful presentation of black history, artifacts, culture to communities that would never have gone to a bricks and mortar museum in the first place. Um, the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum also uh, started a mobile museum, a mobile van. Um, some of the records there indicate more than 75,000 people view the Anacostia vans uh, exhibits during the first three years of its operation. And that's where you start to see mainstream establishment museums take notice. The Whitney Museum in New York, um, you know, the Smithsonian, the Met. Um, and if we flip to, not that one, but that one. I'm sure many of us are aware, of course, that mobile museums are absolutely still around, and some of you may you know, work for institutions that have that capability. Uh, two of the most interesting ones, I think, are the Black History 101 Museum by Khalid El Hakim, who's from Detroit, and the Philadelphia History Truck uh, by Aaron Bernard. Um, Khalid brings, he doesn't have a van, <laughs> but he takes his artifacts to universities and community uh, organizations throughout the country. Um, so I'd like to actually invite him to our campus and get the Philly history truck down here too. Okay. Um, and perhaps a little bit later we can talk about this concept of decentralization because when the mainstream museums take notice at what Anacostia and Detroit and Chicago are doing, uh, they start to think, you know, should we be doing that ourselves? And if so, why should we be doing it? And that's going to cause some conflict. Um, so the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum is founded in 1967 by John Kennard. Uh, and they really put forth a model of black public history that's deeply invested in the local community. Um, it's officially a branch of the Smithsonian, um, but the museum is relatively still unknown to most tourists, uh, even Washington's own residents who don't live in the southeast portion of DC. Um, quite a few folks associated with the museum uh, refer to it as a step stepchild of the Smithsonian, out of sight, out of mind. Um, but this museum's work in collecting seemingly ordinary objects, presenting seemingly commonplace stories about African Americans was groundbreaking. Um, and it too had a significant impact on the revolution in uh, mainstream museums and telling history from the bottom up. How many of you guys have heard of the rat exhibit? A couple of you. So this is a groundbreaking exhibit, uh, 1969. Um, if we could just think, would, would the National Museum of American History have presented an exhibit on the rat that lives in your house or you know, the Detroit Art Institute. It was pretty much <laughs> unthinkable. Um, and I think it's one of the best examples of their revolutionary voice at this period. Um, I like this too because you get kids, you get kids in the photo. Um, Kennard said, it was this exhibition which convinced the advisory committee and staff that the museum could no longer afford to present exhibitions dealing only with life in the past. Such exhibitions, it was strongly felt, must have relevance to present day problems that affect the quality of life here and now in Anacostia. Um, when the Anacostia Museum first started, 
their exhibits were fairly commonplace. They didn't have anything um, really connected to African-American history and culture. They had an exhibit on doodles by the president, so like some art exhibits. They had some sort of uh, petting and touching zoo kind of thing. Um, but there wasn't anything quite like this. In 1967, rodent control legislation was defeated in the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, the conceptual origins for this exhibit uh, show us how ideas traveled from the bottom up, uh, from the school children to senior museum staff. So they had this small petting zoo, uh, and staff started to notice that mice were disappearing from this petting zoo, and then bones were surfacing in the snake cage. Uh, and so they started asking the kids who were visiting, you know, what happened? And the kids said it was the bad boys from the neighborhood who were responsible. It wasn't them. They weren't doing anything. Some other kids. But the staff figured out that the kids hated these mice. They hated the rodents uh, because this was rooted in their daily life, their daily experiences. Um, this was the reason for the disappearing mice. Um, and so then the staff started asking, well, what do you know about mice? What do you know about rats? And their answers were startling. Uh, the children said, rats can give you rabies. Rats tear things up at night. They bite you. They can do many tricks. So the staff and volunteers decided to design an exhibit to reflect and address the children's concerns. So when they arrived in November 1969, uh, they read panels on the history of rat infestation, the impact of rat bites, they learned about pest control, you know, all of this stuff you wouldn't expect to see in a traditional museum. Uh, they had a model of a backyard with live rats in cages, uh, and apparently there was a short film from CBS entitled Who Do You Kill, uh, which portrayed a black family living in a one-room apartment. Their child had died from a rat bite. Uh, teenagers from Anacostia also presented an original skit called Rats based on their day-to-day -day experiences. So this is, this, is difficult, this is a difficult subject matter. Um, and some community leaders protested the museum's choices. You know, why should we have this really grim, depressing exhibit? Shouldn't the exhibits be uplifting? Um, doesn't this negativity already reinforce uh, the seeming otherness of Anacostia's residents. Um, so this clash between uplift and realism, uh, between vindicationism um, versus critical analysis um, caused a lot of conflict uh, between and within African-American museums and their communities. So this question of, which we have all talked about before, uh, how do you balance interpretation of sensitive topics with you know, a welcoming tone for visitors so that they'll want to return? Um, for his part, John Kennard uh, spoke out against those who urged caution. Uh, he said, the museum can and must speak forthrightly without fear of retribution on such social evils as rats, water pollution, and racism. Uh, and he believed that these exhibitions could directly help uh, Anacostia's residents combat the problems of urban life and also remind Washington's policymakers um, that its poorest citizens were not going to suffer in silence. Of course, keep in mind here the connection between Anacostia and the Smithsonian as a whole. Um, the uh, secretary of the Smithsonian at the time was S. Dylan Ripley. He was an advocate for the Anacostia Museum 
despite other uh, senior leaders at the Smithsonian um, having some issue with what Kennard was doing and the amount of control that John Kennard wanted to have over his exhibits. Um, so there's, there's a lot of back and forth there. All right, in 87, uh, Anacostia opened a new museum. It was located away from that storefront, that street front, but it was still within the Anacostia neighborhood. And then, go to the next one. And then in 1997, the International Afro-American Museum in Detroit, uh, which is now the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History and Culture, uh, opened a 120,000 square foot museum in downtown Detroit. Um, so the latter parts of my book talk about the transitions these museums started making, um, whether in the 1970s or 1980s. They started to get bigger, uh, and some of the founders decided they needed to move to a new location or build a new museum, uh, and there were tensions uh, surrounding that development. Um, we can see, if we look at you know, the Detroit Museum, has anybody been there before? Couple folks. It's pretty, I mean, it's an impressive building. If we go back to the Anacostia Museum, um, the design elements of both museums clearly reflect the African diaspora in a way that their original uh, manifestations didn't. Uh, so this represents a trend that took root among many black neighborhood museums founded in the 60s and 70s. Uh, rather than adaptively reuse a commercial space, uh, they moved into or built much larger facilities. And on occasion, they would re relocate out of their uh, original neighborhoods. So what I started to see during my research was this disconnect that started growing in the 1980s between the original museum founders um, and then succeeding generations of staff. Um, and that led to this debate about whether a national museum should be constructed, and if so, where? Um, and that was part of the disconnect. Okay. Um, the National, Mer Mer National Museum of African American History and Culture is not the first museum of African American history to be identified as a national museum. Uh, the Wilberforce Museum uh, in Ohio is the first museum of African American history uh, to be designated that. Um, but of course, it is the first one to occupy a space on the National Mall. Uh, we know the museum's founders and advocates uh, fought hard for that space. Uh, they understood the geography of power, uh, wherein space and neighborhood that a mu monument or museum occupies can determine its success and rightly or wrongly denote its importance. Um, the National Museum's position on the National Mall demanded it possess an architectural power comparable to that of its neighbors. Um, so I'll highlight just a few things about his design. Uh, this is David Ajahe, who designed it. <laughs> um, architectural historian Mabel Wilson argues the National Museum presents the antithesis of the European mausoleum-style monument uh, that characterizes most of the other Smithsonian museums, although not, and it's important to note, the National Museum of the American Indian. Uh, she argues it functions as a counter-monument 
uh, quote, that counteracts the tendency for memorials and monuments to incite forgetting rather than remembrance in the present. And unfortunately, I have not had the opportunity to go into that museum yet. Um, apparently, the attendance expectations have uh, exceeded uh, what they had thought, so it's still very difficult to get a ticket, and Rebecca hasn't either, no. Uh, so how many of you have visited? You're very lucky, <laughs> very lucky. And I, I, we'd certainly welcome your comments on that. Um, Ajay Associates is actually the lead architect for the Cape Coast Slavery Museum, uh, which is scheduled to be completed in 2020. Um, I don't have the map, but once complete, the Cape Coast Slavery Museum and the National Museum of African American History and Culture uh, will face each other across the Atlantic, the site of the Triangle Trade, the site of the Middle Passage. So there's an interesting geographical, um, you know, spiritual, historical connection between these two sites. Um, a Nigerian curator and artist, uh, I'm going to mispronounce it, but Okui and Wesor, uh, he's the author of a catalog on Ajahe's work, uh, says the existence of both museums will offer us, quote, a new symbolic and artifactual, artifactual script that represents and reimagines African memories in the 21st century. Uh, so the museums will mirror each other, reminding audiences that the history of the African diaspora is living history connected to multiple spaces and continents. Um, when the National Museum debuted, I, I paid attention to the reviews to see who was going to complain about it, because there's always going to be complaints. Um, there was one review in the Washington Post who had, I think, some fundamentally misguided criticism uh, by a journalist named Philip Kennicott, tw uh, September 2016 review. Uh, he took issue with some of the, the multimedia presentations. He said they were too loud, they were competing. Uh, and then he critiqued the aesthetics, and then he said, the National Museum, quote, has arrived too late to have the dignity and serenity of museums from which African Americans were excluded in the last century, unquote. So I read that, and I chewed on it a while. <laughs> I had some issue. And I think that criticism fundamentally misunderstands the National Museum's core mission. Uh, and the ideological groundwork laid by preceding generations of black neighborhood museums. Uh, the founders and supporters of this museum, maybe I'll go back to the national slide, never intended for this museum to be a serene space. It's never going to replicate the hushed tones of the National Gallery. Uh, it's never, it's very consciously not white, <laughs> right? Um, it's not intended to do that. Um, certainly, and some of you who have been there probably can attest, uh, some components of his design invite serenity and reflection and pause, as they should. Um, but what Ajahe, as the designer, what the museum founders did, uh, they created a museum that in intended to make visitors feel uh, a double consciousness, a sense of pride and a sense of unrest, you know, of trauma and of history. Uh, artifacts in the museum that may make visitors rightfully feel joyful, uh, like Chuck Berry's Red Cadillac, Louis Armstrong's trumpet, are coupled with objects that speak disturbing truths. A door marked by Hurricane Katrina, uh, iron shackles, whoops, that's a bad slide there, that could have only been worn by a small child. 
Uh, dignity is inherent in these artifacts, uh, even as their very existence acknowledges the prickly dissonance that exists between the promise of American exceptionalism and its reality. All right. <laughs> um, I'm going to wrap it up now because I've been talking for too long. Um, unfortunately, our colleague couldn't be here uh, to talk um, a bit about the potential intersections between African American museums uh, and Latin Latinx museums uh, and history. What's interesting about the Anacostia Community Museum, first of all, they, they changed their name. Um, it was a, a long term in the 1990s. I can't remember the full name. And they changed it to Anacostia Community Museum relatively recently um, as a reflection of their new identity. Its mission statement now does not address African American history or audiences at all. Um, they have sort of redesigned themselves to focus on uh, the, the multi-ethnic communities that now exist in their neighborhood, the new migrants that have moved in. Um, and several of their exhibits, like the Gateways Portales exhibit and the Bridging the Americas exhibit, uh, now address kind of the changing community. Uh, so the museum has changed to try to meet the needs of these new demographics. Uh, so it shows an example of the flexibility of these institutions. Uh, so that comment earlier about the relevance of ethnically specific museums is very interesting because here was a, a technically and ethnically and racially specific museums that has the ability and vision to be flexible to meet the needs of a changing neighborhood. And they're doing so by putting on uh, these exhibits and even changing their mission statements to reflect, to reflect that. Thank you very much, and let's open it up for questions. <laughs> so you can just raise your hand if you've got a question, and I will bring you the mic. Uh, thanks for your presentation, Dr. Burns. I'm Jamarcus Underwood, um, uh, Jack Hadley Black History Museum in, in Thomasville, Georgia. Um, could you speak a little bit about the, um, the issue, I guess, between the National um, Afro-American Museum in Ohio and the back and forth between legislators, community people, and those in DC? Um, if okay. Um I'm trying to remember my research. I actually know a bit more about the conflict between uh, the Detroit Museum founder um, and the National Museum, and less so about the Wilberforce complications. Um, and certainly, if anybody else knows more details about the Ohio National Museum, feel free to say it. But in terms of, of Detroit, um, Charles Wright felt, and, and quite a few other African-American museum leaders felt that to have a museum on the mall likely to be under the umbrella of the Smithsonian was going to be a fundamental betrayal of the mission and the spirit of African-American uh, museums, um, that they wouldn't be able to, to rightfully or correctly interpret and tell the stories of black history and culture because of these external controlling forces. Um, so as I did my research, 
I'm going to have to look up Wilberforce again in my book. But as I did my research, I would see uh, Dr. Wright writing these letters uh, saying, you know, we cannot let the federal government take this uh, away from us, essentially, uh, that this is our job. Um, and we want a national museum to be in our community. We want, he wanted it, of course, to be in Detroit. Um, so it was only rather reluctantly um, that he kind of acceded to the National Museum being in Washington, D.C. Uh, Kennard, you know, the conflict between the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum and the Smithsonian um, is also another interesting aspect of that story as well. Um, Kennard had some documented issues with the Smithsonian in the 1980s. He felt that the Smithsonian was giving short shrift to the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum, both in terms of um, attention and publicizing, as well as funding. Um, by that point, the Smithsonian was telling some stories about black history and culture. Uh, Spencer Cruz Field to Factory uh, exhibit in the 1980s was kind of a, a landmark moment there uh, that Kennard took issue with that, uh, saying that, I mean, it was well done, but he thought it was not the right place of the Smithsonian to do that. Um, uh, so basically, there's kind of a, if you look at these local museums, you can see kind of the tensions that develop when there's discussion by the Smithsonian, hey, let's have a national museum and put it uh, somewhere in Washington, D.C., when it seems like that's the first time they've actually paid attention to African-American history and culture. Um, so I'll have to come back to the Wilberforce example. The, the legislation complexities were out of my grasp, I think, when I was doing that research. Uh, and also that debate about a national museum, I mean, of course, it started back in the 1900s. I mean, it took 100 years for this museum to actually be built. Uh, so there were gaps in legislation and gaps in the dialogue about how and whether uh, to actually create this. Okay. Hi, my name is Julie yes. Rose. Hi. And um, I had a question um, about using the word colonizing and decolonizing the mm. historical narrative in um, African-American museums. So the idea that the tension that was raised um, to argue against having the museum on the mall, um, that there are external controlling forces, for example, was one argument. Would you, do you feel like that terminology um, could be applied here, this idea that that was a colonizing um, perspective? Um, because I've heard other people talk about how African American, well, black, black museums in the United States, for example, um, uh, quite, the question is who's owning the narrative now because so many museums, mainstream museums, what you were calling the big museums, um, are interpreting African American history like they would not have done 20, 30 years ago. So this idea of, is that of, again, who's controlling the narrative and in that change? I'm just curious about that phrasing, decolonizing and colonizing. I don't use that phrasing in my book, but I would absolutely argue um, that the colonization narrative was most certainly f foremost in these black museum founders' minds. Uh, again, keeping in mind they are working within the context of the black power movement in the late 60s and 70s. Um, most of the language in these, these early documents of the museums um, is acknowledges and uses the language of the black power movement, 
but they temper it. I've seen revisions of documents tempering some of the criticisms of, of white colonialism and, and white uh, um, museum leaders, but they do use that, that language, and absolutely, yeah. Hello, everybody. Hi. <laughs> My name is Merlin Bell, and I'm, uh, I work at the Missouri History Museum uh, as the Teens Make History and Theater Assistant. But I wanted to touch bases on a couple of things that you were talking about uh, in the presentation, and that was uh, basically the, the National African American uh, Smithsonian at Washington, D.C., and also a couple of the things that I've been hearing. But one is, I guess, why did it take so long for it to be built, especially in the mall area, since the history that dates back all the way in the beginning is African-Americans helped build that mall, period. And also, the second thing is, I, I guess, the narrative being kind of touching bases. At our museum right now, we're focusing on number one in civil rights, um, in St. Louis. And many of the African Americans in the community is talking about, uh, you know, we haven't seen anything like this. We haven't seen our history this detailed in ever. You know, it's not being touched on in, at schools. It's not being touched on anywhere in the St. Louis area. Um, and I guess for me, it's like we have so many of our major institutions, so many of our major, um, our money, our dollar, it's all white people. But yet we don't have, the black museums is fairly still new um, because I haven't heard any until recently all across the nation. So um, I don't know if that was a question or a statement, but it, it's just, I, I, I really like this presentation because it's like it, it starts the dialogue on uh, African-American museums and how for so long um, we're just recently, we're just now touching on more and more of our culture because we've we've been here, but uh, it's that acknowledgement. So thank you. Thank you for uh, the question. I think you first started out with why did it take so long to be built? Um, so there's a lot that goes into that that answer. Um, Certainly political and historical moods and events influenced the whether or not there was a sustained discussion in Congress about this museum. Um, the depression uh, had a particular impact on uh, certainly African American community organizations, the ability uh, to raise money for such a museum. Um, so the Depression and World War II sort of caused a, a decline in the um, discussion about creating such a museum. Um, during the 1960s, we see um, there's the introduction of a bill called, I'm trying to remember, uh, it was shortly after the, the urban uprisings. And there's a white congressman named Schur, if I remember correctly, um, who wanted to establish a national African-American uh, museum. Um, and so that, that conversation was born as a result of the, 
the, you know, the devastation taking place in so many cities around the country. Um, so it, it just is kind of, it rises and falls according to who's in Congress and their receptiveness to uh, such a museum. And they really weren't receptive at all until the 2000s. And um, did you have a comment there? Okay. <laughs> um, you know, even again within the African American community itself, there's a lot of divisions about how such a museum should unfold and whether it should happen in the first place and who would take control of it. Um, there's conflicts within the Smithsonian. Should this be integrated? Should the National Museum of African American History expand its interpretation of African American history to meet this need? Does there need to be an entirely separate institution? Um, so I guess just the short answer to a, a complicated question is that there's so many competing voices and broader events taking place around this conversation um, that the, the motivation for getting this through legislation and getting it passed uh, just simply did not happen until the 2000s. And you've got people like John Conyers um, and some other Congress people who were consistently pushing for this and they were the advocate for the National Museum. So their consistent voice was important in that. Um, thank you. Thank you very much for your presentation. My name is Boyd Harris. I'm the uh, lead interpreter at San Jacinto Battleground State Historic Site here in Texas. Um, and since I work at a battlefield with a giant monument that emulates the National Mall in Washington, D.C., I, I constantly have to deal with this question of memorialization versus education and the gray area in between it. I was wondering if, I don't know if you've covered this or if it's, uh, if it's in your book, uh, which unfortunately I haven't read, but I'm going to now. Um, the, the, the establishment of the, the museum on the mall is happening about the same time as the Martin Luther King Junior Monument, which is being built. If it's not on the mall, it's mall adjacent. I don't know how extensive that is, but I wondered if there was like any, if you knew of any kind of, uh, kind of overlap in the controversies between the development of that monument and the development of the museum um, in this area of American landscape that is, you know, supposed to be kind of memorializing what it means to be an American and everything. There, there certainly is an overlap, although when I finally finished and published the book, neither the National Museum nor the Martin Luther King Monument had been finished, or I think in the, in the case of the Martin Luther King Monument, they hadn't, they hadn't even started it yet. Um, so some other, somebody else may have a, a, an answer to that question. But certainly the overlap in terms of, um, <coughs> we've got a comment from the Ooh. audience here. Oops, sorry. No, you're good. So, uh, dude, I'm sorry, I guess it's Stan and state your name. Enemy <laughs> uh, uh, Ekong, uh, Chief of Interpreter Brown versus Board, and I, I worked on the mall. Um, and the Martin Luther King Memorial, the conversation for the Martin Luther King Memorial started in 1989, and it was led by Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, the institution that um, definitely claims his, his membership, of which it took from 1989 up until 20. Uh, well, I think uh, 2010, 2009, for the establishment of it. And a lot of it had to do with presentation, philanthropy, all that good stuff. And, and so as we're, we're talking about um, the, the financial dollars, 
um, the significance of where in the mall. There, there are a lot of uh, a political interests um, and a lot of philanthropic interests of not only what, what gets uh, erected, but how it gets erected. And, and even the erection uh, of the, the Martin Luther King Memorial wasn't, it had to be corrected in a sense of uh, the quote and how much artistic liberty was given to uh, the individual. And so um, to, to answer your question, yes, I, I think the erection of the Martin Luther King Memorial had everything to do with um, philanthropic dollars, political interests, and how the memorial would fit into the grander story of how we told the mall story, which there is like a reason why Lincoln is positioned the where it is, and you know, in concurrence with the Washington Monument and so forth. There was never any like question of like someone did not want that. They did not want it on the mall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think as as we we have a very. Um, changing social climate on how we talk about history, there's a reason why histories have been suppressed the way that they, they have always been. And I think putting Martin Luther King on the mall, given that he was, I mean, I mean some, some would argue that at the point by which he gave his, uh, his, last, his speech um, countering the Vietnam War Memorial, uh, which is adjacent, and, and once again, he's positioned in such a way so that we can talk about that story, that you can mark a year to that speech and his death, right? To, to some degree that his son, of, of whom I've, I've had conversations with, has said it's because of that speech that he, he died, right? He was all good before he attacked the steps of the White House. And so, that yeah, putting him in the mall was very controversial because of all the other monuments and what they stood for in juxtaposition to him. Thank you. Uh, Terry Freeman, National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. So first, just a teensy-weensy correction. Uh, Dr. King didn't lead the I Am A Man uh, march. He joined it. So the sanitation workers actually led that march. Um, just a conundrum for me, because I don't understand why uh, there is this idea that we can only have one African-American anything. So whenever there are multiples, it's like, well, wait, we already have one. Well, you know, we have a lot of art museums. We have a lot of all sorts of different types of museums. But this controversy around, you know, Ohio and Detroit and Atlanta and Memphis, it's just ridiculous to me that we think that if we have one museum, that that is enough to represent a history that actually is the basis of all the other museums um, in, in the country. So it's more of a statement than a question. Right, and thank you. <laughs> um, I talked with uh, Rick Moss, um, who is, oh, I talked with Rick Moss, who is the director of the Oakland Museum of African American History, um, and I uh, talked with him about, you know, what's the impact of a national museum going to be on all these other African-American museums? And his response was really interesting. He said, you know, the National Museum isn't going to be able to do what we can do as a regional local museum. We all need to, to work together. He said, we're, we're hubs of the wheel here. So there's a, a giant community. And so the sense that this museum is the definitive teller of African-American history and culture, um, it's, a, it's a misguided sense because everyone has these unique contributions. And I don't think that that's 
Right, right. Others think that, yes, yes. Right. And I believe they have, don't they have as a part of their mandate, and I think this may make them a little bit unique, um, the call to actually lift up endeavors and partners all across the country. Right. Who are looking for the same. Yes, they have outreach programs that go into communities about collections care, um, that sort of thing. Yeah. I just, I'm a graduate student at Texas State, and I just read. Um, five different books on, on the National Museum. And one was written by Lena Horne's granddaughter, I believe, or daughter. Um, but the, the issue was, from all the different perspectives, was that they were competing over where to exactly put it within Washington, D.C., because right. they had other plans for other land. And, and the, the museum where it's positioned now is the final spot yeah. on the mall, mm -hmm. which is what the, what the um, you know, should this be the final thing that we put here? Um, you know, and then they were, they were debating over the funding, who, how much would the government put towards that? But there are some really, really good books out there if you wanna know the history of that entire process of the hundred years that I think everyone should read if they're interested in museums. Yeah, there's certainly a variety of, of non-mall sites considered, um, but the advocates wanted you know, the most exposure. Um, you know, these off-mall sites may have been, they weren't as aesthetically powerful. Uh, they certainly uh, felt if they, if they built a museum in one of these off-mall sites, it wouldn't be the same kind of powerful statement as the other museums on the mall, right? Hello, uh, Zachary Stocks, formerly of the Northwest African American Museum in Seattle. Um, more of a museum general question. I'm kind of curious your take and any of your opinions as well about what you think the role is now for storefront museums or these small institutions that develop with a hyper-focus in mind that's very regionally specific to that community, to that neighborhood, um, and as museums that have grown up out of that tradition and entered a new professionalization phase, um, they've obviously you know, strived for something uh, to be in line with what they envisioned a successful museum looks like, and many of them have been very successful in that. But is there still a role for those institutions that are primarily concerned with educating the people that live in the immediate vicinity of those facilities? I would argue absolutely, but I'd like to hear from those of you who are at these smaller um, institutions. Uh, is anybody working in, in such a museum, a community-oriented museum? We've got a couple hands up here. Let me just, I'm headed. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm Ashley Balknight. I am the curator at the Hermitage, which is not a small institution, um, but I am also the museum instructional designer at Robert Churchwell Museum Magnet Elementary School. That's a mouthful. It's in Nashville, Tennessee, um, and I absolutely think that they're necessary. Um, if you're going back to, you know, um, early museum foundings, um, early uh, 20th century, they were having museum students, library students, go to communities um, and actually train as a part of their assistantships. 
um, to establish libraries as community centers. And so having those now, it just goes back to the original foundation of these collection, the collecting institutions kind of produced by HBCUs. So by having them as storefronts or their rooms in libraries, you're just carrying out 100, 200 years of tradition that had been started a long time ago. Yeah, so um, interesting enough, I'm at a, muse a small regional local museum in South Georgia that grew out of this black museum movement, but the founder had no idea or he wasn't really a historian. Uh, he was an Air Force person. Uh, he just collect, started collecting out of the need, similar to much of these earlier museums. Um, it is vitally important for, the, uh, for these local regional museums to continue to educate locals or anyone else visiting these areas. Um, prior to moving there, I had no idea I would interact with a German journalist writing about Southern life, right, and, and visit the museum because uh, at for some of the plantations, they're lacking uh, African-American stories. So we come and we tell that story at our museum. Um, and so many international persons are visiting our museum in Thomasville, Georgia. So um, I, that's been eye-opening for me. So I really believe that uh, these small museums are integral and um, vitally important. Everyone can't get to D.C. to adapt their mission, their focus in a way that these larger uh, establishments like the National Museum of American History uh, just can't do. Um, yeah. I'm Karen Sheldon from Northeast Historic Film, and I just want to highlight the notion of audiovisual in small and large collections, the ad that you showed, was looking for three-dimensional objects. And in the contemporary universe, so many museums rely not just for exhibition and education, but for the understanding of the history on film and video. And in the national sphere, the US Holocaust Memorial Museum, anybody here from the USHMM? The Holocaust Memorial Museum was the first major museum to be designed by film people. It was designed by people who worked in documentary film. Mm. The Japanese American National Museum also in early days was very much into the use of amateur film and home movies. And the National Museum on the Mall now has a home movie digitization initiative. Um, we're gonna be talking in this room at four o'clock about the use of all kinds of film. Mm -hmm. And if we look at th the trajectory of museums of all kinds, and particularly those that are coming from populations where we need to think about how do people represent themselves, their own audiovisual communications, particularly those in the home and community, are so important. So please join us at four. Um, and that's interesting you said that. The, you know, this ad does focus on 
3D artifacts. Um, but what the Desable also did in the 1960s was send uh, teams of uh, kind of youth volunteers out into the neighborhoods to collect oral histories from community residents, uh, which is just a really a fascinating outreach um, um, activity uh, that you know later museums would certainly take that and model from. So they were looking at non-traditional collections as well. When did they start with the oral histories? Uh, late 1960s, mid to late 1960s. My name's Alice Parman. I live in Eugene, Oregon, and I'm an exhibit developer. I have my own business, and I've had the privilege to work with an organization in Oregon called the Oregon Black Pioneers. They're based in Salem, Oregon, completely volunteer. And they made a decision pretty early on that they weren't going to be a collecting organization. They didn't need a brick and mortar museum, and instead they would work with existing institutions around the state to have the stories told of African-Americans who live everywhere in Oregon and whose stories generally aren't told in, you know, whose voices are not heard in the museums. And they've really, uh, they've really gotten around. So check out their website. It's a phenomenal organization. And Alice, I've used your exhibit makeovers worksheet in my classes at App State. Oh, no. Sit, sitting on my desk right now. <laughs> I have to stand up. If you would. <laughs> Hi, I'm Angela Davis. I also make museum exhibits. And as Tom Wancho mentioned earlier today, one of my questions in coming here was to talk to you and all of you about the ways in which we build museum exhibits, the, the kinds of things that we consider good illustrations and good content material for exhibits. Um, I've had the privilege of working on two or three projects that had significant African-American history components. And what's sad and disheartening is to go into the collections room and not find those subjects represented. And of course, I know that's something that, that um, historically black institutions are you know, starting to gather and collect, but you know, it, sometimes it's just not there. And exhibits are visual and experiential media. So I'm interested to know when you've had a story to tell, but you've had a paucity of artifacts, a paucity of uh, photographs, maybe no film. Um, how did you tell the story? Because I know how I've done it, but I don't know if it's the best way. Um, I think trying to find a cookie cutter way to do that is probably going to be virtually impossible um, because each museum, each community is very different. It has its own personality. It has its own collection. Um, what I would suggest is, um, and this is for anyone who's doing any kind of research, start with the HBCUs in your area. They've been collecting and documenting African-American history since just after the Civil War. Um, they have collections that may not be as easily accessible. They may not have beautiful finding aids, but the, the material is there because um, they've been collecting it far longer than many mainstream institutions ever even opened. Um, I spent last, well, two summers ago just going through the Hampton Museum um, collection records, and the material there is absolutely amazing. It wasn't cataloged properly. There were files in there from 1997 with things from 1886. If you have the patience to go through it, it's there. 
um, as, as, as well as African-American newspapers. Um, they have been publishing information for decades, but no one takes the time to go through them. Um, and going through that material and talking to people in the neighborhoods, the types of exhibits that you need will come up after those conversations have been created, but it's gonna be a case-by-case -case basis. There is, no, there is no formula, there is no magic number. It's just what's best for that area and that will create the exhibit that you need. For instance, I'm at a museum school. I have a classroom. It's in a community of predominantly African-American students. What I would decide to do for that museum will not be the same as the Hermitage, even though we're dealing with the same topic. Different communities, different set of resources, different outcomes that are needed, all case-by-case -case basis. All right, we've got two more hands that have come up, and I think that is gonna be, take us to our time. Um, in my experience, whenever there's a lack of objects for an exhibit you want to put together, that's really an opportunity for good storytelling. And um, I can speak from the experience of having gone to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and taken the greatest museum tour I've ever been on with a gentleman uh, named James Brown, who led us on a driving and walking tour of uh, uh, James Island out there. And the museum that we were going to go into, he forgot the key, so we never even went inside. So what we did instead was we drove around and he just told stories about the black community there and the things that they grew up doing, where they used to hang out and the music they played at the juke joints and the size of the mosquitoes that would go out to Mosquito Beach. And the way he presented that, I'll just never forget it. It was hilarious, it was also insightful, and he brought up things that were um, you know, related to inequality but also to joyful celebration. Um, and I would say you know, the best way to go is probably oral histories if you can do some sort of multimedia, then uh, yeah, interviews, something like that, because it's really a challenge, but a good challenge to have when you have to rely on the spoken word of people who've been there rather than rely on the objects that they keep. now to the other side of the room. Hi, Vanessa Torres, uh, Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area. Um, but I'll echo that, that um, there is no cookie cutter approach to, and, and I talk a lot about this in program development, especially around youth program development, but there, there's no cookie cutter approach. But something that I've realized when I talk about um, how you develop these things is what are those values? What are those values that um, those institutions that are doing this successfully have? And that if you can replicate those values um, into uh, your organization, then, then you can begin to look at how do you make that successful. Um, and I think this gentleman was just speaking to some of those values. Um, how, do, how do we tell those stories? Uh, but then also that commitment from um, your leadership and, and from the staff to make sure that those stories um, are told. And I think, so thinking about the values versus, you know, how, how do I take a program and make it the same in my space? And, and just a small addition is that the, the absence of objects is part of the story. Right, that, that the basis that um, the history is destroyed in part because 
people didn't want it to be known. And so that there, there's so much more that can be done with the absence of an object than the presence of one. Thank you. All right, thank you all so much for your attendance today and for, to Andrea for her presentation.